on, Matt. My pleasure. I've got to catch my breath. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no worries. I'm sorry no I'm rest. late. I'm sorry I'm late. I, uh, hey, no worries. You know, sometimes not all my ideas are good. Yeah. <laughs> and I had this idea about running here. Yeah. Uh, great idea. Yeah. From the North Shore. And it was uh, a little bit last minute and I was on my way thinking, um, I don't think I have enough time. Yeah. So instead of hanging a right and head over towards Lionsgate, I, I, I thought I'd take a shortcut. I thought I'd take a left, head over to Lower Lonsdale and take the uh, C bus on a beautiful day. And it took forever. I mean, I must have just missed it for sure. It was empty when I, when I ran in and, and then uh, it seemed to take, you know, 15, 20 minutes to get there and then get across. It was definitely half an hour, 40 minutes. Definitely not high speed transit. Wow. Well, I think it was the right move. I feel good now. Yeah. A little sweaty. Sweet. But good. <laughs> anyway, nice to see you, man. Yeah, nice to see you as well. Nice. Are we are we live? Are we? Uh, yeah, that's okay. how we do. We don't have a fancy uh, <laughs> All intro. Right. Sweet. Just a rolling start. Yeah, nice to see you. Let's tell everyone how we met originally. Yeah, we met through Entrepreneurs Organization and their GSEA, um, which is the Global Student Entrepreneurship Awards. I was in my early 20s uh, as a student entrepreneur with a ton of hustle, but no idea how to build a business or get started. And yeah, grateful for that incredible event and all the... Mentors that came from it. My first angel investors came through the GSEA. And uh, yeah, we, we connected. You brought me into your office. You became a, a close mentor and forever grateful for all those EO members who who stepped up and helped uh, ultimately teach me how to build a business. Yeah. Which was ShareShed at the time. Which was ShareShed. Yeah. yeah. Cool concept. Yeah. Thank you. I think uh, I think there is a ton of potential um, to create a world where people could experience uh, and have access to the outdoors in a in a way that doesn't exist today. So the original vision for ShareShed was to allow someone to be able to rent outdoor equipment off their neighbors. And then we created a company called Guides.com for guided experiences. Yeah. So everything from we had international students in Vancouver that were climbing up a frozen waterfall with ice axes, uh, even though they've never been on a hike before. And it was, it was really cool to open up the backcountry here. That's cool. But tell people the, uh, the drill analogy, because I, I loved it. And I love the sharing economy and mm -hmm. that's, uh, I really did love the concept. That's one of the reasons I liked you other than you look like a younger, better looking version of me. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the drill example is that the average lifespan of a drill is only 15 minutes yet half the households across North America own a drill and you don't need to own a drill to be able to have access to the utility, which is usually, you know, drill a hole. So when you say right? lifespan, you mean the amount people actually spend the amount actually using used. Yeah. the drill? It's 15 minutes. In the, in the life of the drill. Yeah. And I think it's just a great example because there's so many other items that you don't actually need to own. You just need access, right? So if we could create a world of access over ownership. Yeah. Then what I realized, so this was uh, my first business that I was starting other than a bunch of, you know, childhood Kool-Aid, clothing lines, whatever else. Um, but what I realized is it's better, especially in technology, to be hyper-focused and then ladder your way up. Uh, than it is to uh, start very broad. So originally the idea was share any items with your community. And then even there was a sh uh, skill share component to it. So learn a new language and, you know, it was, it was a very a big vision, but um, we narrowed into one vertical was, which is uh, outdoor adventure gear. Yeah. That was a good learning, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, if it, it wasn't the drill, the drill is just the metaphor, but if it, yep. if it was a drill, if there yep. was just, if the drill was a thing, you just do that one thing and absolutely nail it. And then go from there. Exactly. Yeah. And even um, if I was to start ShareShed over again, I'd probably start with, you know, 
just ski equipment or just stand up paddle boards right? and just build a really tight community. Yeah. As one of my lessons from Airbnb is they would always say it's better to have a hundred people who love you than you worked at Airbnb. Yeah. yeah. Uh, better to have a hundred people that love you than a thousand people who think you're all right. Right. It's just, fo- cool. just focus in and, and knock it out of the park. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. I like that Airbnb. Is that a written on the wall there? Something they talk about or it was advice that Paul Graham gave Brian Chesky. Paul Graham's, um, was running Y Combinator and Brian Chesky's the, the, one of the three co-founders. And that was, um, yeah, that was, that was feedback they received early on that really shaped, um, their, their trajectory. Did ShareShed come out of Y Combinator? It did not, no. Um, but it did come out of a program called The Next Big Thing, uh, which Ryan Holmes and Meredith Powell started. Ryan's a uh, co-founder of Hootsuite. And uh, and Meredith is a longtime serial entrepreneur in the Vancouver ecosystem. And it was inspired, um, I think, partially because the the Teal Fellowship in the United States. So you'll actually be paid, I think it's $100,000 to drop out of college to then to start to build a business. Because the thesis is that uh, some of our brightest um, young talent coming out of high school follow a traditional path, which is uh, lawyer, doctor, accountant, right? And that's uh, the famous quote around we're we're promised flying cars in the future, and instead we got 140 characters, right? We got Twitter instead. That's yeah. how, <laughs> which is no bash on Twitter, but um, so yeah, it's it's an incredible program, and uh, you know, um, Ethereum is one example of uh, a company is that, Peter that came Thiel? out. That is, yeah. Uh, so co-founder of, uh, of PayPal, part of the PayPal mafia, incredible team that surrounds him. So it's a, uh, it's a great program in the United States. Nothing like that existed in Canada. So it started with 10 entrepreneurs all under the age of 23. And, uh, we received a grant that was forgivable. It wasn't like a, a loan in any way other than just here's some money to help you get started and, uh, and mentorship. Um, and, uh, yeah, first, first week at, um, the next big thing. And I had, someone who reached out saying, have you heard of the EOGSCA? So it was literally that first month I went from um, cold calling people on Google and going up to my professors at at school going, can you tell me more about the sharing economy? No one even knew what the sharing economy was at the time, right? Oh yeah, it was pretty, yeah, I feel so fortunate. What year was that? That was 2012. Um, That 2012 is when I started ShareShed with a couple years of sort of, um, you know, hustling, cold calling people on Google, as I mentioned, Um, went down to San Francisco and directed a film series for school on the sharing economy with Google, Facebook, Airbnb, the first ever co-housing space, first ever co-working company. And uh, yeah, and then and then uh, the next big thing kicked off in 2014. I think the uh, I think ShareShed's just ahead of its time. You know, sometimes things are like that. They, they, you know, the culture, the demand, the, the people don't understand it yet. You know, I really personally love the idea. You know, the first uh, car sharing meeting I went to in Vancouver uh, was in 1997 or eight. When were you born? 91. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, yeah, I was in my 20s and yeah. I was just blown away by the idea. I just love that moto. That I think was, it was. Yeah, I don't remember. I remember the meeting was at like, the, just the dingiest sort of free meeting space, maybe a library, something. It was just so budget. Yeah. Um, imagine the people that were there, you know, right. like uh, I was in tech at the time. So I I was interested maybe from that perspective or whatever you want to yeah. call it. But there was there was more than uh, more than a few kind of in, hippie environmentalist types. Yeah, and no doubt. And yeah, a lot of sort of passion from the people that were bringing it here. I wonder if it was Moto. I don't remember. Um, Zip car. 
Yeah. Who knows? It was just a, like an idea back then. Yeah. Um, I guess my point is that that was 25 years ago hmm. and I can't believe it. Like when did, when did we all think that car sharing was really here? I mean, the fat part of the curve of people, when did people decide, yeah, car sharing is real maybe five years ago. Yeah. I still think from an adopter curve, just a, um, if you think of sort of the crossing the chasm, it's probably in its early majority phase still. Yeah. It's definitely has a ton of room for growth. And it took 20 years to get there just in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. So, and we'll get there with the drills and everything else, you know, it could be uh, tech, a mindset. I was just saying to my wife this weekend, um, you know, we were kind of woke up, you know, on that Sunday, beautiful day. What should we do? You know, kind of nothing on the agenda, right? Do you have any, uh, any projects we want to get done? And we started sort of chatting about what, you know, could be done. And the, we spend like a project is normally dealing with excess in life. Mm-hmm. It's kind of gross and embarrassing, honestly, right. but it is, it's, uh, it's stuff accumulated, you know, it's, it's kids with too many toys that are just haven't been played with and they're sitting over there in the yard and they should just be dealt with. And, uh, not all kids do. It's like grown up toys and all yep. kinds of stuff. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's health is the same way, you know, right. like our, the crisis nowadays isn't one of like scarcity. It's one of excess, you right. know, which in health results in, in inflammation, which results in right. cancer and so many problems we have. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, consumes so much. So I yeah. fully believe in the sharing economy and I'm going to do whatever I can to, um, just be part of it, you know, yeah. as much as possible. There's also some interesting sort of macro trends, right? Before uh, it was hundreds of dollars to buy a tent. Now you can go to Canadian Tire and buy one for $30, right? So can you really? The the incentive structures, yeah, all borderline disposable, right? So Jeez. unfortunately, uh, we're not building things that has a infinite time horizon. We're building things that are, um, yeah, borderline disposable. So uh, from that perspective, I and mean, people buy things for three reasons, right? It's price, quality, and convenience. Yeah. Um, so for, for, the sharing economy to really take off, it requires that it's almost the better term is like the on-demand economy, right? Even Airbnb, Airbnb has seen a lot more success as soon as you can book something instantly and that you have, and that there's more curation. And actually coming from Brian Chesky, who's saying the future of marketplaces are less about infinite scale and being completely open and, and peer driven, but actually more about uh, curation and quality consistency. Yeah, I believe it. Mm-hmm. It's like, the idea, you know, I'm idealistic to mm-hmm. a fault. Yeah. My wife tells me as recently as this past weekend, uh, it, it's real. And, yeah. uh, that's why I'm at that stupid meeting years before it's a practical thing to even yeah. do. Um, and you know, what the reality is that people don't take on, like, look at the electric car, right? People don't right. really take it on until yeah, it's awesome. Great example. Yeah. They don't take it on because it's better for the environment mm-hmm. or, or whatever, um, but they take it on because it's fast and it's cool and it says something that I like about myself and whatever. It also, I, I feel like what drives the decision more than any of that is other people are doing it. There's not that many people that are willing to stick themselves out there and be the first, right? Um, in in, ado- in any um, adoption curve, it's usually self-referencing to peers that they trust. Um, yeah. I, that was one thing that I learned from, from ShareShed was trying to understand... Um, what are people's main drivers? Cause there's many different value propositions. It's save money. It's do good for the environment. It's build community. Um, there's all these different value propositions that I was playing with. And what we realized is the number one driver is that other people were doing it, that people trust. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's as soon as you, uh, you see, um, 
you know, people that you, you reference and look up to, and all of a sudden you feel like you'll be left behind if you're not part of this new movement. Yeah. And that's probably the, the bigger driver. I like to do that. I like to be that, you yeah, know, awesome. and I think that's ego too. Like, honestly, it's embarrassing, but I, it's powerful being a first follower, right? It's like that driving a, electric since 2015. Really nice. Good for you. Awesome. Tesla. And yep. it was, uh, it was a Kia soul. That was the only nice. thing I could get at the time. And until my team, I drove it for a year and loved it till my team yep. said, I don't think it's on brand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's real cute, tiny yeah. little white thing. Ugh. Um, but it doesn't fit, you know, uh, you know, where we're trying to put you in the industry or whatever, some stupid, but correct comment. Oh. Um, and then moved into, you know, Tesla from there and then nice. fell in love and looked back. Yeah. yeah. They're, um, they're amazing cars. Yeah. Oh. But I got a Rivian on order cause they can't seem to make a oh, truck. Cool. So yeah. We'll see. Yeah. Apparently it's coming in, in this year, but I don't know, now very on brand, right. Better than a Nissan Leaf or something like that. Yeah. In the real estate world. I'm nervous yeah. about the charging though. I'm so addicted yeah, to right, the Tesla supercharging. It just, mm -hmm. it's so easy. Um, it's such foresight. You know, I spent the weekend obsessing about Henry Ford. Yep. And other than finding out he was a terrible anti-Semite, which I didn't know. Wow. Um, I didn't know that. Most of the rest was pretty good. I mean, what he did with labor was excellent and it got weird and terrible and sort of ended up where it landed. But Everything else was just so amazing. And, and what Tesla has done isn't so different. Some things in tech mm -hmm. are like that. It's timing and it's not reinventing the wheel. Right. You know, uh, Ford had just a ton of foresight. You know, once he, 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 for, there's a perfect example we were talking about before. He did one thing exceptionally mm -hmm. well. Like right. he fought his investors and his, his leadership team for years on expanding the line beyond the Model T. I think he sold 15 million cars, if you can believe wow. that before they expanded into, into the model a, which came next. Um, but so much foresight. I mean, just, uh, thinking, okay, we're going to sell all this stuff. We're going to run out of tires. So let's build a rubber plus set up a rubber plantation. So we don't run out of rubber and let's build this mega factory. And then they looked, obviously what he's famous for is they looked at, um, slaughterhouses. It wasn't even his idea. It was one of his team said, you know, in a, in a slaughterhouse there, there'll be a cow that's sort of uh, executed and then it's hung up. Um, and then the first person kind of chops this off and then it moves along and the next person slices this part of it off. And anyway, it goes down and they end up with stacks of, I don't know my parts of a cow very well, but you know, they've got, they've got some uh, nice rump roasts here and they've got some nice tenderloins here yeah. and some center cuts, uh, all organized, pretty good. right? Yeah. Making that up. Um, Anyway, so he looked at that and said, what if, you know, what if we did that with a car, except mm -hmm. instead of taking things off or putting things on and, you know, the rest is obviously history, but. Do you think we'll get there with real estate? Yes. It, it's uh, it's kind of crazy to me when you look at how we build homes right now, it almost feels like, imagine if we built a car the same way, like, Hey, I got a good chassis guy for you. Yeah. <laughs> like, where are you buying your tires for here? Let me send my guy. And, and then you piece it all together and, you know, inspections and everything else compared to can we just have a level piece of land and, um, well, prefab is, I think mm -hmm. the closest prefab. thing to that right now. Mm -hmm. And it's huge. Yeah. 3d, 3D printing is kind of honing in on that. Um, do you yes. think there'll be a Tesla for, um, for homes, maybe single family homes where there's the one brand that sort of rules them all, maybe some amazing, uh, competitors like we're seeing in the electrical car industry, but there's that opportunity that exists. I, I do, but I'm not the right person to ask. Like <laughs> I get obsessed with, uh, things too soon and whatnot. Like right now I am obsessed with modular construction and, and figuring out what to do. We're trying to 
design a very cool hotel in downtown Vancouver, oh, nice. um, using modular construction, like railway cars as, as rooms. Wow. And yeah, so this idea that you can kind of build the, the perfect or the optimized unit and then assemble it in a, in a beautiful way. It's not a new idea. I mean, right. there, in every single architecture competition mm -hmm. in the world, there, there's an entry really? with a, right. a stacked uh, railway car or shipping container mm -hmm. type of format. Um, but in terms of like the Tesla of single family, I don't know. I don't, I don't know of it, you know, there's, uh, maybe it, it's, it, but Tesla to me is, is more of like what I was talking about with Ford was it's just so forward looking, right. you know, um, it's like Gretzky always said, you don't go where the puck is, you go where the puck's going to be. Mm. And in success and business for really big success, really big long-term success. That's absolutely true. The trouble is most entrepreneurs, um, can't think like myself included, uh, you know, we're constantly, we're busy putting out fires. We're, we're, we're looking, you know, to next quarter, we're looking to payroll. Sometimes we're looking towards maybe the year end, you know, maybe we have a three or five year plan, which has to do with the curation of the team and, and the progression of the company. Um, but the chance to take a, a step all the way back and to see things really, really clearly when you're, when you're in the whirlwind of operations, it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. So when I look at real estate, um, you know, and, and when you say Tesla, I don't necessarily think of like this, this beautifully designed and constructed pot of a home being dropped onto a site so much as, well, let's come back to that. That is a cool idea. Um, but I think of like the idea of like in, in sort of home ownership, where is the puck going? Like, where is, uh, the place that you want to be? No, I was going to say 10 years is not even enough because look at the, right. the Vancouver right. car share example. That was 20 years just right. to, just to get a, not even a critical mass, but just the start of a critical mass. Um, where could it be going in 20 years that would fundamentally change everything? Mm -hmm. Shared ownership might be part of it, you Maybe. know, not Hopefully. to obsess about that one idea. Yeah. Um, but look at, you know, people's sort of the only Airbnb that you're allowed to do in Vancouver, I think is, is your own principal residence when you're not using it. Right. Yeah, correct. Yeah. I and, think, I think in the future you will buy your house from or sell your house to a company, not an individual. Yeah. And there's so many different trends that are leading to that. Um, and then that sort of questions the, the proverbial American dream around ownership. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, um, a rabbit hole that we can go down around, you know, um, Isn't that what rent is though? I mean, I mean, if you, if the, if the sort of like the, the cliche, um, like we talked earlier with Teal, like the cliche, sort of the cliche of like, you graduate high school, you go to university, you get a job, you retire, you know, that's old, old news. Everyone knows that now, but the, the white picket fence kind of cliche right. now is that, you know, you buy a house, you pay it off. I mean, that's getting really old fashioned mm -hmm. now, but, um, maybe the direction we're headed is, is, is less ownership yeah, or fractional ownership. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, there's definitely a, a world right now where there's a narrative around Wall Street buying up Main Street and uh, the uh, the front page of, um, I believe it was uh, um, the, the New York Times, was it? It was uh, the great housing blunder um, and around how our over obsession with home ownership has actually um, led an entire generation astray. Um, then you look at the other side of it is we have a shrinking middle class. And part of that is because most of our wealth creation has been in home ownership. So just in Vancouver alone, there's been a hundred trillion in value creation that's uh, taken place just through 
real estate appreciation, right? It's like, it's, it's so that's only gone to people who actually own, not anyone that, uh, that doesn't have access. I said hundred, hundred billion is the correct number. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's only people that actually have skin in the game, right? So if you're renting, you're not appreciating, you're not actually riding any of that. Um, so yeah, they're definitely, uh, should and, and will be a world where you have the benefits of owning with the freedoms and flexibilities of renting and where real estate isn't all or nothing, where it's not just siloed, where you have to rent or you have to own. And, and if you decide to rent, then you're typically, um, you know, locked out of ho- the housing market to some extent, if, um, prices continue to rise faster than wages. And then the other side is you're locked into a long-term mortgage, you forfeit your freedom and you have to maintain a certain lifestyle, uh, just to service your debt. Mm-hmm. I've often thought about optioning single family homes. Mm-hmm. I think people would sell an option. You know, they would, for the right amount of money, uh, yep. sell the right for someone else to buy their house in the future at a certain price. And, and to a lot of people, uh, that would be an amazing option. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I can think of, uh, you know, a couple on my street who's kind of an older couple. Their kids have gone. I live in a neighborhood where there's lots of... I mean, we chose the neighborhood after screwing up and renovating a mid-century modern home that we loved uh, and then realizing there's no kids here. And uh, we drove around counting basketball hoops and hockey nets and ended up where we are now. And um, and there's one couple there that's just 20 years ahead of us and their kids are gone. And uh, But they've become house rich, mm-hmm. but they're the cutest old hippies. You know, they, yeah. they don't care. They just, you know, I see them putting their canoe on their old truck and just doing their awesome. thing on the weekends in the summer and, uh, and their house is worth millions. Um, and that's an example of someone I think might love the, that idea of for the right price, um, you know, selling that option. But I just haven't got my head around the execution of it. There's something that doesn't necessarily sort of sit well, like it's great, I guess, for the people at the time. And then later when it's not great, it just wouldn't feel very good, I guess. I think there's a lot to peel back the onions or from a high level, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, it's how our business key living is, is structured as an option to purchase um, and deposits appreciate in value. So it's actually a forward purchase agreement where you're making default deposits towards an eventual purchase, which is an option to, to purchase, right? So you can sell that option. Uh, but as you peel back the onion, it's how does redemption work? Uh, how does it work relative to security laws? Is the option actually a security? How about the Residential Tenancy Act? Is this a landlord-tenant type arrangement? How do you update rent, right? There's just a lot of complexity that surrounds it. But yeah. um, And it's not for everyone, right? Some, some, some people would not want to share any level of ownership in their home. Uh, and just want to keep that landlord-tenant relationship. But there definitely are some that want to turn their tenants into partners, have them uh, have aligned incentives and actually treat their asset like a homeowner. And, you know, back to the the Blackstone um, and all these uh, groups that are buying up single-family rentals, I think there's going to be a world where um, in a lot of their single-family rental programming that there is a level of gradual homeownership. Uh, making, you know, affordable housing is super important, but so is affordable home ownership for those who want to actually access it. Totally. So this is what you're doing now. Mm-hmm. I know it's called yeah. Key. Yeah. And that's all I know about it. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> I loved it when it was uh, Key in Toronto. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but now you've moved back. Welcome back. Yeah. Thank you. It feels so good to be back in Vancouver. Does it? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, we had to talk about, you know, creative uh, naming solutions yep. for your company. Yep. Um, you know, we bought up the only other key real estate company in BC at one point just to 
uh, just for that reason. But, right. you know, we'll get there. We'll figure it out. You know, when you were in Toronto, having a friend move to Toronto, named the company Key, and I heard about it. Yep. It was all, all good. Yep. Um, but now you're back. I just wanted to be confusing for yeah. people. But you guys Happy are to chat about it. You're not really Vancouver based. You're we're Toronto based. Yeah. Uh, we have one other team member in Toronto, but we're fully virtual. Oh yeah. Um, all our real estate right now is in Toronto, but most of our focus is actually in the United States um, on the single family rental side. Uh, single family rentals aren't really a thing in Canada. Um, also, for our model, um, land cost is so expensive in a city like Vancouver that you're pretty much only buying condos for the appreciation. You're not buying it for cash flow. Right. If you want to buy cash flow real estate, you'd look to the states because the numbers are far more compelling. Um, so unless you're uh, usually it's just, uh, you know, buy and hold and then you're riding that that pop. Um, so just given the market dynamics, there's uh, I believe that we're in the first inning of the single family rental industry and that some of these larger institutional groups are going to have to get ahead of this narrative of Wall Street buying up Main Street. Um, there's a really strong ESG component of it. Most there's funds that have an ESG mandate in real estate, but it's really just the E, which is environment. But there's not that much that you can do for real estate on the S side unless it's affordable housing. That's a whole nother business model. Uh, so now there's an opportunity to actually allow people to uh, to do well. Um, what well, is the so, S? The S is social. Okay. So environmental social governance. So okay. this is sort of the impact investing thesis that especially a lot of Euro European groups are uh, mandating that their uh, operational partners that they're financing actually have an ESG mandate to their real yeah. estate investing. I love your path in entrepreneurship. It's got you thinking the right way. Yeah, thank you. You know, I sit here all day just trying to figure out how to sell condos. You know, it's just like <laughs> self-employed in yeah. so many ways. Hey, you've done an incredible job. I'm good at one thing uh, and it's and it's been okay. Yeah. Um, but I see your approach. I see the way you look at it. You're building something that's you know, worth something to somebody else with, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, really deep pockets. And, uh, I like it. I think it's just how you came into entrepreneurship in your early, early twenties. Right. Mm -hmm. I love zero to one. I love things that haven't been done before. That was part of my draw to share shed. That's how I got into laneway. I built a laneway housing company here in Vancouver at 18. We built two, just two homes, but it was an incredible experience. And I learned so much and the ability to take a alleyway that, you know, somewhat going to hard, waste, yeah. yeah, a lot of waste on very underutilized. And all of a sudden you have a, um, you know, you, you, you don't even lose the parking space yet. Now you have this beautiful house and, uh, oh, I love it too. Yeah. And I'd love for uh key to, um, you know, address the, this sharing economy aspects that I was passionate about with ShareShed and actually create a world where, um, there is, it's not just uh, you know, transactional where the more you own, the less rent you pay, but it's actually a world where um, you can, you can have community and you can have a sense of belonging and you can move from a bachelor in Berlin to a one, two or three bedroom in New York, Shanghai or Toronto without actually having to leave the ecosystem. I like the sound of that too. Uh, and just for clarity, when you say key, I mean, you're <laughs> key living. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so let's get, I want to break down key living. Let's get yep. into it. So what, what, that was what came after ShareShed? So yeah, ShareShed was a marketplace for outdoor adventure gear. Um, so folks in Vancouver built a really strong community, 10,000 people. Uh, we had events um, like stand-up paddleboarding, sunset stand-up paddleboarding off Spanish banks, uh, sunrise, yoga, at Quarry Rock and Deep Cove. Um, and that was just a way to have people use the platform, right? To, if you don't have a stand-up paddleboard, you can rent one through ShareShed or go yeah. to Mac, whatever you want to do, but it's a free event, just show up. Yeah. What I realized is that I validated a different business. I wasn't actually validating people's uh, aspirations to rent off of each other. It was 
Um, there's sort of five main factors holding people back from getting out active outdoors. The first one was equipment. Um, second one was network to go with. Third was skills. There is inspiration. And lastly, transportation, right? Transportation was often a big one. So we whiteboarded at Hootsuite that were generous enough to, to gift us office space as part of the next big thing. We whiteboarded these five different um, challenges that are holding people back from having unlimited access to the great outdoors and came up with this concept of, uh, of guides. So guides.com was the name of that company. We ran an experiment where we um, sent out an email blast to our community and uh, we did Joffrey Lakes snowshoeing. We had um, 55 people sign up and pay. So we thought, okay, there's something here with no paid marketing, anything, 55 people set up and pay. That was a challenge to then go, okay, how are we going to, you know, make this happen? We actually hired a guiding company and we were like, you know, can't mess this up. The next weekend we ran the same experiment, but on Facebook and it was a closed ad. So, you know, none of our community was targeted. We just picked an audience on Facebook, put $30 of ads behind it at first. And we had 33 people sign up and pay. So our customer acquisition cost was under $1, which is unheard of, right? Just a cost per action, not acquisition, but cost per action is $18 on average on, on most you know, social sites like Facebook and Instagram. Uh, so anyways, from there, we just started doing a ton of different events. And it was actually an EO or who I was partnering with. Um, and, uh, and then he came back to me and saying, I said, this partnership makes more sense for you than it does for us. What if we just acquire you? I went to another EO or who is an investor uh, in ShareShed and he said, uh, one deal is no deal, even if you're not looking to sell, see who else is interested. Um, so I went to a number of people in my network, some that were on our advisory board. Next thing I know, we're under NDA and we had five or six term sheets um, to sell the business. So uh, part of it, too, is I've I lost my confidence in this being the next Airbnb. Um, I thought that this could be a great lifestyle business to create a marketplace around experiences. But um, my heart wasn't in it to the same extent of feeling like I was actually going to address the, um, you know, great Pacific garbage patch. That's two sizes, uh, you know, two times the size of Texas that we could accomplish with sharing our goods. So, mm-hmm. um, anyways, Airbnb was one of the companies that were kicking the tires. The deal didn't make most sense for our investors. I went back to Airbnb and said, I have a fiduciary duty to look after our, you know, 17 investors in the company. And they came back and said, what if it's not about best deal for your investors, but the company you're most passionate about uh, being at? And they painted this incredible picture of unlimited travel budget, you know, one of the fastest growing marketplaces of all time. Oh, wow. I was always so obsessed with Airbnb to roll with a ton of autonomy. Um, yeah, some some aspects of the role that didn't totally uh, pan out, like report directly to the founders, <laughs> uh, which is totally fine. And I knew clo- that must have sounded amazing. It sounded amazing. And then as as you know, we fleshed out the role a little bit more. Um, it uh, it was still it was like an absolute dream role. And it was actually uh, Nate Plucharzik, one of the co-founders of Airbnb, that I went to with the idea of key living. And uh, it was his validation and excitement that actually prompted me to. Um, you know, leave my dream job at, at Airbnb and to, to, you know, swing for the fence. What you were doing for Airbnb, was it about adding on services, guiding and experience services to the stays? So believe it or not, actually the, uh, someone who was on my advisory board was part of the founding team for Airbnb experiences. Um, but where I landed was actually on, um, managing specific geos for Airbnb. I see. So sort of being the single point of accountability for the marketplace health, um, very entrepreneurial role. Most of my uh, focus was actually in uh, acquiring more supply because we had such a supply constraint marketplace. So it was very much like a a growth role, running growth experiments, uh, smiling and dialing property managers and vacation rental markets, 
um, working with comms policy legal to understand um, you know how to how to launch a market in a in a way that um, makes sense for all the stakeholders involved and also led um, a cross-functional team looking at uh, technology three to five years out that would impact the future home sharing uh, went really deep on the in the blockchain side in um, 2017 throughout that entire hype cycle and that's what uh, that's part of the reason that I landed on fractional ownership and is there is there a world where you could actually go long on Manhattan and short on Brooklyn? And can we have 24-7 continuous redemption of people's equities position? Interesting. Well, well, what was the idea when you originally pitched it to that guy? You said, yeah, sounds good. You should go for it. Um, so the idea was actually, um, yeah, it's a great question because it's evolved a lot from no. <laughs> you know what originally was to, to what it is today. Um so actually, I should uh, backpedal one uh, one minute here. And before I brought it to Nate Blucharczyk, I brought it to, um, I was connected actually through Manny Pata, another EO member, um, who uh, who introduced me to a fund that he's an LP in, it's Plaza Ventures. Plaza Corp is one of the largest condo developers. I coincidentally at the time lived in a, in a loft that, in a Plaza building. So um, I, I was, you know, aware of, of their brand. I think their fourth largest, built 8 billion worth of condominium in Toronto. Um, so Plaza Ventures, a venture arm, and I pitched uh, Rob Richards, who's uh, the co-founder of, uh, of Plaza Ventures, along with Anthony Heller, who's the founder of Plaza Corp. Very quiet person. You can't even find a photo of this guy online, yet he's one of the most prolific angel investors in all of Canada, a real champion of, of technology. Um, so Rob asked some really good questions and then told me he's been thinking about this for about five years. And he even hired an engineer as a consultant to help him think through a, a concept uh, around um, actually tokenizing real estate, fractionalizing it, but allowing people to consume real estate incrementally who actually um, who actually live there. Uh, and then the, having a third aspect to the marketplace, so asset owners, um, owner residents, and then passive investors. So passive investors actually can provide real-time liquidity. So the original thesis was... Um, is there a way to turn condominium into a commercially accessible asset class and then build a brand similar to Tesla, uh, but centered around um, a new form of home ownership that doesn't exist today? So the idea was that we would actually, um, just like Brookfield, what they've done with, I don't know, are they on their 18th fund or something like that now? They've consolidated timberlands, um, ports, right? Um, so what we're looking to do is actually go out uh, work with, uh, we actually, um, our lead investment bankers for Credit Suisse and Wells Fargo. Um, so that's somewhat unprecedented for, you know, a company with no, no track record. We went through the ringer with Deloitte and all these different groups, uh, confirmed them as our lead investment banks. First closing was 450 million, uh, out of $2 billion that we had under contract to buy condo at scale. Um, and the idea was that if you're the Harvard endowment fund, your minimum check size is a hundred million dollars, but you can't own more than 5% of a portfolio. Um, there's no way for you to invest in condo right now, um, even though it's one of the, you know, you know this better than anyone. It's like this incredible asset class that exists, but it's funded by high net worth individuals for the most part. There's some condo developers that are bankrolling it themselves, right? Or there's some that are backed by institutional investors, but it's um, it's still, it's not, it's not uh, the same as Timberlands, Ports, and what Brookfield's done, right? So that was the original thesis is can we turn condo into commercially accessible asset class? Um, but given the market dynamics, COVID hit, even if COVID didn't hit, I don't think we would have gotten to the first closing just because we're new managers. And if you're an institutional investor, you know, easiest way to probably lose your job is to bet on something innovative. 
Um, so yeah, a ton of great learnings. And then all our VCs came back to us and said, interesting, but your growth is a force function of capital. And now to be able to grow, you actually have to go out and raise money, buy the real estate, manage the real estate. Um, so they're like, why not be Airbnb for home ownership instead and actually create a marketplace that can be configurable so any asset owner can introduce essentially a 21st century version of a rent to own. Um, so that's what we've done. We're asset light. We don't own a single home and we have asset owners that come onto our platform. They select between 12 different variables, depending on what they're well, looking walk to me through, like, for. I own a yep. few condos. So let's imagine I, I brought one of them to you and said, I yep. think what's the, what's the right property. This one would rent really well, or the type of person that would rent this would also want to own it. Yeah. So, um, it sort of depends on what your driver is, right? So there's the yeah, what is my driver? Like, why would a, why would an owner of a condo come to you? Well, some people it's not a fit for because they're like, I own it. And I'm going to give these condos to my grandchildren one day and we're just going to keep this passive income. Right. Um, in Vancouver, that's that's typically the case. Or you're just going to it's going to be all or nothing. You're going to sell and take cash off the table. So for you, the, the only reason if you own a Vancouver condo that this would be interesting is if you decided that you're going to divest over time and have a higher quality resin that this, that's in place where there's no risk of someone being delinquent, destructive, not paying rent, because you actually have custody and collateral over their investment. Yeah. So you'd be able to say, I want you know 1% of the, the condo I'm willing to sell or 5%, whatever you so choose. And from there, um, you uh, the, the resident pays a proportionate amount of repair and maintenance costs. So you actually align uh, behavior and have, have the right incentives. And then you give them the option to purchase um, depending on what you so choose, it could be three years from now. So, uh, so you would have to be comfortable in actually liquidating your position and having someone in place that would, uh, would have the option to purchase over time. I get it. I get it. I get a lot of it. I mean, have you heard of Addy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was with them last week. You were in Vegas. Yeah. Blueprint. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I invested in them years ago. Oh, great. You know, early, early, early seed round. Um, so I, I, some of the principles are the same, mm -hmm. you know, they've landed a little bit in commercial, um, but I totally get the, you know, the concept and mm -hmm. think it's, you know, really progressive and cool. And I totally understand as an owner of real estate, why it would be in my best interest to have a tenant who's becoming an owner, mm -hmm. you know, such a better tenant than a right. regular tenant. Yeah. And then you mentioned a third group, which is this other sort of like passive investor group. Did yeah. So that original vision and not to confuse them where we're at today, that doesn't exist. Okay. Um, that adds additional complexities. I think Addy is a great example of a company that is doing that where you can passively invest with key. It's uh, it's owner resident only. Um, so it's, uh, you can't, you can't say, Hey, I want to, um, I want to own like 1% of a place and then I'm going to rent arbitrage it and make money or I'm going to build a portfolio of key homes. Yeah. Um, with, uh, with, with our business, with key living, the way that it works is that, um, you actually have to live in the home, um, that you co-own with the asset owner. How do the numbers work? Like roughly say I own a condo that's worth mm -hmm. say 1 million just for yep. easy math. Um, am I interested in this because I, w I couldn't sell it right now for a million, uh, or I don't want to, or is it because I can get someone to, to pay 1.1 for it, but not right now over time. Yeah. So that's a, that's a great example of, of one thesis that might lead you to, to working with us. So, um, let's say interest rates have gone up. 
um, market has softened, you're fixated on being able to sell for a million, but maybe if you sell right now, you might not get that like but right now. It, yeah. But days, it, yeah. if you believe that the Vancouver market is going to be worth more in two to three years and you're comfortable and eventually taking your cash off, off the table, uh, especially if you've had a bad experience with a, with a tenant, and uh, then we would say, we'll source a tenant. We'll vet that tenant. We'll collect and remit all the payment guarantee rent. You never have to worry about rent. Um, and, uh, and then you can set as one of the variables, um, is how value is determined. So, uh, we have partners that provide a, um, AVM, uh, automated valuation methodology. So on a monthly basis, value is updated to whatever market is. So you could say I'll sell in three years at whatever the fair market value is. Uh, you could say in three years, I'm willing. Well, so that 1.1 isn't fixed. It's like, no, I commit to the program and whatever it's worth in three years, correct. That tenant can have it. Yeah. And then the other side is you could fix it and say, Hey, based on historicals, I'm going to um, sell at 5% appreciation a year. So over three years, I'm going to sell it for uh, 1.15 yeah. um, instead of 1 million. Mm-hmm. And cool. then, and then the rent. So the way that rent works. So if the person comes in and you say, I'm happy to sell, uh, you know, 1% upfront or receive a deposit, uh, then that person will receive a 1% discount on what would be market rent. If they own 5%, they're getting a 5% discount on market rent. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Essentially you own what you own and you rent what you don't own. And then that just allows so many more people to have access to home ownership, um, have some skin in the game, get on the, the, um, the property ladder and, and, um, essentially build equity on their terms and without being house poor, without having un- unhealthy macroeconomic household debt. Um, we have Stephen Polez, who's the chair of our advisory board, the past governor of the bank of Canada. And this is something that he's being super vocal about is our, our over obsession with home ownership, which many ways is healthy as we've discussed is also can be unhealthy, uh, to the point where we're just over levered. Right. And then we go into an environment like what we're in right now, and uh, then everyone's underwater. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've heard that. And it's, uh, you know, it can be scary, especially in places like Vancouver, where you look at the percentage of people's income that they spend just on where they live. Right. Um, and that, those numbers get terrifying. I just feel so good about people building wealth in their, in their primary principal residence sure. in Canada. That was just the best. And I, I totally yeah. get the concept, how it's good for the tenant to become an owner. Gradually, they can't write the big check today. They can't mm-hmm. old, own something wholly today. Maybe their credit isn't even where it needs to be today. Right. Um, but I want to understand the person contributing the property. I get that they're, uh, they're, they're either fixing a price or agreeing on market at some point in the future. Um, so I guess in that way, it's not limited, but it does feel a little bit like they're, they're capping their upside and what's their, what downside are you taking away? Like what extra security do they have other than a higher quality tenant? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, part of it is a higher quality resident that's paying a proportionate amount of repair and maintenance. Right. Uh, but also guaranteed rent because you have custody and collateral over their investment. So there's no risk of someone not paying rent. I was talking to one group that owns 10,000 homes in the U S and when COVID first hit, they were paying people to leave. Like they could start the, uh, eviction process, but it just wasn't worth it. It's just get them out. Here's a check. Um, so, uh, so that, that can be quite meaningful. So instead of an ordinary security deposit, you've got way more because mm-hmm. right? you have, uh, that tenant owners, uh, contributions towards the yeah. principal. On average, it's six months rent prepayment essentially that you have. Um, as far as other protections, one protection that's really interesting is you can set a price floor. So you can say, 
I think what I've what I've noticed with real estate investors is um, what's most important is certainty, right? It's not about true. it's it's being able to model and and uh, sort of have a scenario analysis. Um, so sometimes you'll trade upside, but you're trading upside for certainty. Or sometimes you won't do something new and innovative because there's uncertainty that surrounds it. So what we've done is we've set a price floor. So you can say, my million dollar condo. Um, I'm going to post on the platform. I'm going to bake in 10% appreciation for the next three years. And uh, the price floor is 1 million. So I'm, I'm not going to sell it for anything less than 1 million. So um, even though you you would already be uh, fixing on the, the appreciation, but if you did an AVM and you're saying, hey, I'll sell a fair market value, but I'll only sell a fair market value, a fair market value is more than what it is today. So you can, you can really, we've adjusted from, we tried to create the one model that we thought was best. And then every asset owner we talked to wanted something different than what we created. They wanted little tweaks. So not everyone would agree. So we essentially, just like Airbnb, you can go on and sign up as a host and you can select a strict, moderate or flexible cancellation policy. The same is true with us. You, you can essentially configure our platform, um, which is fully automated to, uh, to implement whatever program uh, you want to optimize for. How do you find the tenant owners? So, uh, so we have a number of sort of gorilla techniques that we've been experimenting with, but it just works really, really well on social. So our cost per action, we've gotten down to $2 and 50 cents. As I mentioned, um, industry averages $18 in a city like Toronto, we've had, uh, you know, many days where we have over a hundred people joining the wait list. Um, so we, ha- we sold that, we took a private condo REIT that has, uh, that had 70% vacancy and we brought it up to a hundred percent, um, or sorry, 70% occupancy. So 30% vacancy, we brought it to a hundred percent occupancy, uh, in short order. We, um, half of which was in 48 hours of cool. people signing up. We've had, um, you know, someone fast our record is three weeks where someone's gone from a Instagram ad, not doesn't know anything about our business to actually owning the home that they co-live in and moved in and everything from three in three weeks, which is pretty cool. That's where those tenant owners are. They're on social media. Yeah. Most of it's a missing middle. Right. And we've also found that uh, the Muslim community is a a vector for growth for us because it's halal uh, compliant um, where there's no interest that you actually. um, What does that mean? So uh, there's a law um, where in the Muslim faith, um, where you can't actually, uh, pay interest. So there's, um, there's, uh, compliant mortgages that exist. Um, but there's usually a lot of fees or, you know, you're, you're buying a house with all cash. So here's a way that you can consume real estate on your terms without, um, without additional leverage. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's been it's been a quite the journey, a ton of learning that's um, that's taken place so far, a lot of adjustments that we've had to make. And it feels like we're at a bit of an inflection point. We're going live in San Francisco and San Jose in the in the coming weeks here. Uh, we just signed a deal in Dallas, Fort Worth. So we're going live in in Texas. This is um, an interesting moment in time because now we're going from one market, Toronto, that's worked well. Uh, we're live in Alberta now um, and uh, trying to figure out how we can. Uh, at first we're always like, do things that don't scale, you know, just super scrappy. Our CMO is, you know, giving tours for people. And then she finds that the maids didn't clean it as well as, um, you know, our standards. So she's going back with her vacuum and cleaning it up before touring people. And there's a countless stories like that, that we have. And, um, now we're trying to actually build the systems and processes so that, um, so that we, uh, you know, that we can scale into markets without actually having boots on the ground. Wow. 
I mean, with, uh, uh, you know, thinking about, you know, in Metro Vancouver, putting mm-hmm. a property, call it a platform, um, scary and interesting idea that, uh, here's a million dollar asset. And instead of, you know, talking to a person, I'm just going to enter in all the information mm-hmm. and what happens next. Yeah. Well, a lot of, so far we've had a lot of people that we've never met that are, uh, co-own a home now. Um, you know, grade five school teachers, um, software engineers, we have uh, new Canadians. We have a recent divorcee that, uh, recently, uh, joined empty nesters, right? It's like the, the breadth, uh, is so much wider than, um, I expected. I thought it'd just be a bunch of millennials that were squeezed out, but the, the missing middle is, is far bigger than that. And some people aren't necessarily the missing middle. They just value freedom. Uh, and I agree with you. You mentioned that, you know, building, um, an equity position in the home where you live and actually pursuing a traditional path of traditional home ownership often does make sense, right? It's like, I would say four out of five times if I was talking to someone, I'd sit and they were debating, do I rent or do I buy? I'd say, you know, buy and in a worst case scenario and you move out, keep it as a rental and then you have passive income, right? That, that argument stands true. Um, but, uh, but most of our education is just helping people understand when do they buy, when do they rent? And then when would they consider a third option? Um, like if you're in a rent controlled environment and you're paying far below what market rent is, then you probably, you might be in a position where it makes more sense to just put your money into, you know, a public read or <laughs> invest with Addy. Right. Um, one thing that's really interesting, I didn't touch on, but part of our variables is, uh, you know, co-creating this with the ministry of housing in Ontario is, um, we're exempt from the residential tenancy act now called the tenancy act because it's a private co-ownership arrangement. So, um, one thing that's a driver I know in Ontario is that this is exempt from, from rent control. So we actually eyes wide open, go in with the owner resident and say, in exchange for, um, having an equity position that's appreciating in value, uh, this is a methodology for how rent will be reset back to market. And there's plenty of markets that operate that way. And some owner owners decide to to uh, keep rent control, right? Because it is a marketplace and that is a nice to have. Um, but it is pretty interesting in a market, even like Vancouver. So your million dollar condo um, prices might be softening, but rent has been appreciating because so many people are locked out of home ownership now that more people are in the rental pool is driving rental prices back up. So if you're, if you're locked into, you know, a tenant that's living there for five plus years and five years, <laughs> you're, you know, the rent that they're paying is probably far below what you could get if it was updated on an annual basis. Have you ever tried the concept with pre-sale? Well, that was the original idea of turning condo into a commercially accessible asset class was let's go in. We had a condo at a 10% discount, I think was our initial deal. But we thought the thesis was that we'd be able to get up to a 15% discount, one single signature, and then buy the entire building. We would have to raise the equity from institutional investors to then be able to put down enough money for banks to be on side to unlock a construction financing. But, uh, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of, um, of costs and opening up a sales center, you know, other things that are involved, broker commissions, even, even, uh, working with third-party groups that are making 2000 phone calls to high net worth individuals to raise enough equity to then even go out and launch your pre-sale program. Right. Yeah. Um, so we thought, you know, we're saving months of time, um, one single signature. You don't have banker boxes up to your elbows. You don't have people coming into your office saying, Hey, I want to change my mind on the counter package that I purchased. Right. Um, so I think it makes sense, uh, in, in theory, but 
uh, but it's extremely capital intensive. And ultimately it's a different business model than the one that we've, we've pursued. I get, you know, buying a whole building, you know, that's a huge check for you guys to write. I also understand that, you know, the, all of the risk you take away and the, and the hassles you take away f- uh, for the developers so they mm-hmm. can give a discount. Um, but what about a, like a, a project that's already being pre-sold, you know, or will mm-hmm. be, um, what about a block of homes instead of a whole building? Have you thought about that? Yeah. I mean, if, if the building has, so we're working in Kitchener, Waterloo, we just went live with a developer. Um, he sold out most of the building and he owns some that he's carved out for himself. So he sort of deferred his taxes and carved out some of them. Um, so that's, that's an example of, um, of the way that we've worked in pre-construction. Um, we have other developers that the private condo REIT that we've, uh, that I was referencing, what they were, um, a series of developers who would roll in condos together. They created a private condo REIT, you know, over 150, um, shareholders or a mutual fund trust, um, or, you know, kicking the tires on actually taking that public, which could be really interesting to have a condo consolidation vehicle and they'd be buying, condos, especially right now with distressed pre-sales, right? There's some that uh, maybe someone came in at a price that no longer is, um, you know, the, the holding true to what they they purchased it at. So that's really interesting for us because now we're a plug and play solution where they can, you know, have a vetted resident that's in place and have a liquidity event over you know, two to four years, whatever they, they want to program in. And if the resident doesn't close then they can, you know, list it to the MLS and run a process traditionally. Um, but yeah, condo pre-sales would be really interesting for um, for any development that hasn't um, sold 100% through. If the, you know the ones that are close to the elevator or garbage chute or something like that, and we could come in, and there, there's sort of two paths. the The way that we've gone so far is we would come in and say, "Hey, instead of trying to sell these or selling them at a discount or whatever you're going to do, just attach them to our platform, and we'll handle everything else." Uh, we don't do property management. And if someone doesn't have property management in-house, that adds some complexity and that's just not their business, right? The other side is if they have external capital partners, um, they rather have to go to those external capital partners and get them on side or else they have to use their profit and buy those homes, uh, which is usually great because they defer their taxes and can work. But what I found is because we are so novel uh, right now that we're going to have to build out case studies have more historicals and then it was probably going to the family offices that maybe made their money outside of real estate they want to have exposure to real estate and now that here's an opportunity for them to do well but also uh you know make an impact and and help people own a home year sooner through investing in our strategy i get that with um the whole project mm-hmm. you know I'm, I'm picturing i'm thinking in my mind you know dozens of different projects but i uh, you know in my mind right now is one Keep it simple. Say it's 50 townhomes. Say they're $1 million. Yep. You go to a family office and say, uh, instead of, you know, attracting ordinary whole ownership buyers for this project, um, we've gotten involved. The idea is that you buy all these uh, townhomes um, and you agree that uh, the tenant owners that we're going to find can buy them off you. Uh, in three years for 1.15, mm-hmm. you know, that, that 5% appreciation you talked yeah. about earlier. Is that roughly how that would work? Yeah. You would yeah. say, okay, we've sold through 70% of the building. Here's something creative we can do with the remaining 30%. You're actually thinking of one specific building. How are they capitalized? 
Well, you mean how would the well do you, do you the have family office would have to write a deposit, right. which would satisfy you know yep. part of the construction loan, so the developer could build it. Mm-hmm. Would that work? Have you talked with any of them about that? Yeah, we talked to family offices. We were very close with one of Canada's largest family offices and buying a, a large block. Um, yeah, that, that's something that we haven't uh, we haven't worked with a family office uh, right now. That's buying real estate purely for our strategy. Um, I think most family offices that we've chatted to are a little bit more conservative in nature, but now that we have this uh, private mutual fund trust that's um, they voted two thirds in favor, they went, they, you know, due diligence us a ton. And then they, the CEO of this mutual fund trust gave a presentation, all shareholders um, had to vote and in two thirds, they voted in favor of, uh, of selling or to actually rolling it into our model. Uh, the other two options were liquidate the portfolio or keep them as rentals. So it's nice to, um, to have a have a two thirds vote. So with that um, with that case study, it will be nice to go to family offices and say, "Here's something that's you know been live in market for a couple of years and is you know increasing your NOI by I call it ten percent." Yeah, I like it. I like to see it happen. You know, I, I like what we do in presale is uh, you know we we find you know in that example fifty buyers that want to put down a deposit and buy these townhomes and own one hundred percent of them. And they wait about 18 months for them to be built and then they complete and they own it. It's very ordinary. It's been done for decades. And with your help, it could be that, and those are frankly, relatively rich people that are able to do that, right? There's a lot of people who can't, that would like to, Uh, but with the help of you and a family officer or a REIT or whatever, um, it's possible that could be a different group of buyers, 50 Mm -hmm. buyers that commit in some way now, or over the 18 months of construction, like once the, you know, the, the construction started with the, with the funding from the family office or the other investment that now, um, you are finding tenant owners over the 18 month construction period who won't become the whole owners at completion as is normal in presale, but instead will become owners three years after presale mm-hmm. at a preset amount. Right. That could work. Yeah, that's uh, I see on your TV cool. here. We have um, the Garment Street Urban Village, and that's exactly um, the the model that we're pursuing with them as you know a small pilot. But um, is this the developer that had retained some of the? This is the Kitchener and Waterloo uh, developer that I was referencing, not the private condo REIT, but uh, but a different group. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a thesis there. But I I definitely think there's something. It's the the challenge is just deciding: do you go out and raise external capital and have a capital partner that's coming in and using this as a strategy, which I think is probably most interesting because then the developer doesn't even have to know about key living in any way. They just go, okay, we have another buyer, and it's a it's a new buying, um, you know, it's a new source of dry powder that are coming in and um, you know additional demand. And demand that's uh, sort of a win-win for everyone involved. Instead of the developer, the other strategy is actually going to the developer and then uh, having them buy in to almost change their strategy with remaining units, which is just uh, which actually is like behavior change and almost a study in just a behavioral economics more than anything else. Yeah, the remaining inventory thing is really a different animal than presale. Presale is about cracking the nut. It's about right. getting enough presales, enough people on paper so that construction Bank can be financed and, yeah. and you know uh, leftover homes are always you know what is left over after construction has started and and that that net has been cracked so to speak and at that point that is probably all of the developers profit that they're waiting to sort of you know mm-hmm. liquidate it or, or just turn into profit at some right. point 
but the pressure's off. They've got time. They, generally the period of construction mm-hmm. at completion, uh, it starts costing them, you know, right. they have, uh, all types of carrying costs and, and, uh, right. vacancy tax, especially in Vancouver, yeah. land cost is so expensive that you have to build as quickly as possible to then unlock your pre-sales return capital and move on to the next project, which is also, that's, that's part of the challenge from a pre pre-construction pre-sale perspective before they sell to go in and then use this as a strategy would be really, really tough in Vancouver because of land costs more than anything else. And then you're also competing with, um, you know, RCFI and CMHC incentives that exist for, um, for an apartment building. So if you decide to go condo, typically it's sell through, get the cash back and liquidate, but you're right. If there is remaining units, that's a completely different beast. And, and, uh, yeah, there's definitely a window of opportunity there, especially now with, as I mentioned, rising, rising rents, but softening, um, a potential demand for, uh, for the luxury inventory that exists. Now explain it to me like, um, that tenant owner, mm-hmm. uh, perspective, you know, yep. like, uh, you know, that million dollar townhome, if I don't have, you know, the, the 10 or 15% deposit right. that's needed $150,000, yep. um, you know, and then I hear about you, what is it? What will I probably hear? Um, so this is a far easier <laughs> narrative than everything we've talked about so far. So we say that, uh, key living addresses the two biggest challenges holding you back from being able to own a home. The first is a large down payment. And the second is having to qualify for and service a mortgage. So with key, you're a co-owner from day one and you have the benefits of owning with the freedoms and flexibilities of renting. Cool. When we go in a layer deeper, then we just talk about you own what you own and you rent what you don't own. So, uh, every month you can choose to, to purchase more. We've sort of Robin Hoodified or well simplified for Canadian example, the entire home ownership um, journey. So 15 minutes on your iPhone pulled over on the side of the road, you can go through the application process. We integrate with your bank. Um, you can set for savings plans. So every month you can have $500 going towards more ownership or receive a, you know, a five grand bonus or inheritance and immediately purchase uh, more of your home. It's a good feeling. Mm-hmm. Is there a minimum? Uh, depends on what the asset owner decides. Uh, but, but as a baseline, we set a $50 per month minimum of purchasing more of your home. So that, that, that's something that I realized everyone wanted is feeling like if they're paying something on a monthly basis, they want some of that payment going towards building more equity. Yeah. I don't see why we can't do that with, uh, an ordinary regular pre-sale project, you know, at the time of launch, why can't mm-hmm. there be, um, some portion of the 200 homes that are available that are, uh, you know, set up for this, this program can absolutely do it. If you have a capital partner that's coming in to buy the homes that are going to underwrite selling these gradually over a couple of years. Yeah. Um, or you could do it if you have a more innovative developer, that's, um, that's comfortable in being able to, uh, sell gradually over a couple of years for remaining units, um, instead of washing their hands from them and moving on completely. Maybe the capital partner could be individuals. Maybe it's not one big family office buying, you know, 50. Right. Um, but it could be an investor who's really quite passive or really doesn't want to own this thing forever and hand it down. They just, they think it's a good deal. A, um, they have the 150 grand call it for the deposit, right? They're going to enjoy the appreciation during the construction period. Uh, they like the idea of an owner tenant that's going to buy it from them three years after that at, uh, a 1.15, call it back to that 5% yep. per year example. You know, if that 
investor, if that individual investor buyer, if they put down, you know, 15% deposit and the market went up 5% per year for three years, they've had hundred percent return on their money. And then if they finance 80% of the, of the cost at completion, uh, and it goes up another 15%, that's, uh, you know, a 75% return on their money mm-hmm. again, yep. uh, three years after that, it sounds like a good deal. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, to, it sounds like a presale buyer, you know, typically a presale buyer that's not thinking really long-term they're making a decision, which is approximately the length of the construction period, you know, maybe three years for a tower. It's I'm, I'm committing for three years that, you know, they're, everyone has the hope that they're going to maybe assign the condo for a profit at some point early. Most people don't, you know, it's being taxed now. It's just more difficult. Um, but you know, in three years when this thing's built, it's going to be worth more and then I'll probably sell. Um, but this could be a new category of investor buyer that is, you know, aligned philosophically with the good that they they can do in terms of helping someone into the market, you know, not knowing that, not knowing that person personally, but knowing, them at least at a, at a resume level, um, right. and, and feeling good about doing that and that their returns are frankly excellent mm-hmm. over maybe not a three-year period, but a six-year period. Yeah. Yeah. Based on any modeling that, uh, people have diligence going through the process with us, typically they make more money and they have, you know, a, a story that they can feel really good about in, in the way that they're investing in real estate. So, uh, time to call Mike and Steve from Addy and <laughs> see what we can do here. So they're part of it. Uh, no, no we we're just chatting about doing something similar actually. Yeah. Um, but, uh, just, just sort of a conversational right now and, you know, meeting again this week to put our heads together to see if the passive investor can help actually, uh, you know, be p- part of the story of helping someone own a home year sooner. And it's such a nice story, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah. you know, um, I would love it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh. I guess the condos that I've bought, I think about, you know, just set it and forget it kind of, right? right. You know, a tenant in place and then, you know, they pay off the mortgage over time. It's just the oldest, uh, the oldest story there is, but it works, right? Yeah. But this is a different and new story mm-hmm. and you're able to do good, um, spread the wealth a little bit while doing well yourself. And, um, and the term isn't forever. It's not never, never. Mm-hmm. It's six years. And you have freedom, even if it's, uh, you know, three years, you have the opportunity to set the term, whatever, whatever your time horizon is. And then the way that we're structured is that the first right of refusal goes to the owner resident. And if they don't choose to purchase the home, um, then you can liquidate it however you so choose. Six months notice is how we, we structure it. So it's really nice for the resident because now they have far more consumer protection than a traditional landlord tenant arrangement, which is, you know, 60 days notice and their son or daughter is going to you, you know, UBC and you have to evict where, uh, we're now at a minimum, you'd have, you know, two and a half years, um, if there is a two year term and a six month notice period. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a win-win for everyone involved. It's, uh, you know, it's highly efficient and, um, yeah, it was, it's, it's great to see the level of advocacy for, the real estate partners that we have right now, as well as the owner residents, you talk to these owner residents, it's amazing how, um, how much pride they have, right? We go in a move in day and they have friends and family and they're, you know, yeah, it feels like their place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. In their mind, it's just a different way of financing. And that is yep. what it is. Mm-hmm. And it's not a traditional rent to own where, 
you know, you have this trigger event that takes place and you have to decide, do I continue to rent or do I have to come up with a mortgage to be able to purchase with key? You're an owner from day one and uh, you're actually building equity from the start. It's not, you're not a hundred percent owner, you know, but you truly uh, have an equity position from the very beginning. They do, but it's small. And mm-hmm. how do they get up to enough within call it three years to be able to own that thing wholly? Mm-hmm. Uh, so they can set a forced savings plan if they have certain goals to be able to own a certain percentage so they can program that in. Uh, there's a co-financing product that they have access to where they can actually lever up their position. Um, so for every dollar of equity that they put in, every dollar deposit, they're actually getting that match with a dollar of debt. Yeah, I get it. Yep. So it's not a fit for somebody who's never going to get there. Uh, or not committed to making it happen? Not necessarily, because there is a world where you can um, you can build equity up to 5%, never get there, um, have the option to purchase, not go ahead with it. So the asset owner decides to sell traditionally, and then they just redeem the 5% ownership position upon sale, whatever that sale price is. So now that person not only received a small discount to what would be market rent, but they also um, rode the appreciation of, uh, of the housing market for as long as they live there. Cool. I get mm-hmm. it. So it is appealing to uh, an, a tenant owner mm-hmm. who would rather just put that extra money into the home where they live because of the feeling. Right. And because they believe in the appreciation of, uh, um, of real estate over where else they could have put that money. Yeah. And, uh, and most people aren't, you know, looking at public REITs and deciding which one to bat a back and when to exit. And, you know, there's, um, there's other ways that you can rent and just invest passively, but, um, it is a different feeling when someone actually has aligned incentives and, um, you know, as a partial owner in the home where they live. Oh, totally. I totally get it. Mm-hmm. It's cool, man. Yeah. You're always, for all the support. You're always ahead of the curve. I love it. Hopefully not too ahead. <laughs> well, you're going, like I said before, I mean, go where the puck is going to be. It's, uh, it's, it's, you're good at explaining it. Um, thank you. There's a lot of explaining to do. That's a challenge you know? too. It's a, it's very novel and I appreciate the the compliment, but I know that we have a lot of a work to do on our storytelling yeah. to just simplify, simplify, simplify. But it's just a new idea to people. It's yep. new to me looking at it from the perspective of a real estate owner investor. And um, I think you're right. The tenant story is easy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, and that's where it gets amazing is um, getting just more people into the market, giving more people that feeling of owning where they're sleeping at night. Uh, of, uh, you know, real estate is in my opinion, the, the best hedge against inflation. Yeah, for sure. Without a doubt. So being able to stop that bleeding for people, mm-hmm. um, is awesome. I love it. Yep. And, um, and yeah, it is, it is an interesting moment in time where the, the market is softening. You have someone who I talked to in four different States in the U S right now doing fix and flip yet. Um, now he has homes that are, that are sitting vacant, right? So before it was instantly he'd post a home and then there'd be buyers. Now it's 45 days, 60 days that are sitting on the market. Um, so th- for us to be able to have a story that resonates so strongly with consumers, we have people who are pre-approved to homes that are already have a resident in place. So as soon as that resident leaves, we have a standing wait list of people who have been verified for their income level, 60 days notice someone's moving out here. You know, there's a lineup of people waiting to move in. So Hopefully we can, you know, continue to execute on, on this demand engine we've created to be able to, um, fill vacancies as they appear. 
It sounds like your bottleneck is definitely not on the people that want to become correct. Yeah, supply tenant. is our bottleneck. Yeah, That's our constraint for growth, yeah. without a doubt. The demand is off the charts, right? It's like almost every metric that you look at it, um, is is about four to six times industry average that we're out competing from a demand funnel. Um, supply is a long sales cycle. Similar to this podcast, you really went into the weeds with me, and that's that's what's required. You have to be sort of fluent in every aspect of our business, yeah. Um, before uh, before you can get conviction, and usually there's many people, especially for us working on the institutional level, working with these, uh, you know, large large groups that are buying 150 homes a week. Uh, there's a there's a lot of stakeholders that have to um, that have to agree. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, I think we're you know. In terms of like telling your story and stuff, I think that one thing you might want to consider is what, what you guys have is the best tenants in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, the dream tenants for, right. for landlords, for real estate owners that are worried about, you know, the NDP's proposed rental cap, you know, right. recently and, and uh, the total cost of ownership and um, increasing interest rates and all of the downside of, uh, you know, kind of you know, the, the scales are tipping in the tenants favor, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the residential tenancy act. And in just so many ways, right. um, offering, if your constraint is supply speaking to real estate investor, real estate owners with, uh, these dream tenants and this amazing solution that solves all those nightmare problems is just a very enticing offering. And those who have lived a bad experience, it only takes one bad experience, but it's a, it's the conversation is wildly different when someone's paying, you know, 10 grand upon turnover of a resident. Right. Yeah. Um, so I get it. I yeah. used to own a rental management company and okay. sold it cause I just couldn't handle it. Uh, just terrible. I'm not mm -hmm. good at it. <laughs> I just don't have a lot of energy for, uh, you know, tenant landlord issues where right. I've seen them and, and yeah, you're right. Anybody who has had any issue with a tenant is, is sold before, uh, mm -hmm. You know, you walk in the door, so to speak, or they go right. onto your platform, your website. So, what's the best way for people to find out more? Uh, so, yeah, I'm happy to always make myself available, especially anyone who made it this far <laughs> in the podcast. So, I'm uh, Daniel at keyliving.com. Um, so, happy to, to receive an email. Our domain is lifeatkey.com or uh, keyliving.com. Um, I said I'm Daniel at keyliving.com because the double at I realized is confusing. I was like, why does everyone struggle whenever I say my email? But it's Daniel at life at key.com. So uh, yeah, Daniel at key living. <laughs> um, and uh, I could see that because yeah. one's a symbol and one's spelled out. Yep. Yeah. Same, but different. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, happy uh, for anyone to, to reach out and get in touch and be part of uh, this, uh, this new journey here. Awesome, man. Well, I wish you the best of luck. Yeah, thanks so much. I do whatever I can to support you and uh, involve you in our projects if possible. I, I believe it's possible. I think it's a super cool idea. Cool. Should we wrap and look at baby pictures? Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> yeah. Excited for you to, to meet the little baby seven weeks now. And um, yeah. How's it going? She's, she's amazing. Yeah, yeah, she's so good. Um, she sleeps well, eats well, which I realize is a really big deal. It is. <laughs> so we have an easy one touch wood. So yeah, I've been told that, uh, don't let the first few weeks fool you, but yeah. so far so good. <laughs> Rookie yeah. doesn't even cry yet. Even the cry is cute. Yeah. A little whisper <laughs> of a cry. Anyways, yeah. it's awesome. It only gets better. Yeah. Awesome. Happy to hear that. I love it. How old are yours? Uh, seven 11. Okay. Nice. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's still good. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Yeah, I think it's still getting better right up until around this point. <laughs> no, I think I had a couple more years yeah, where nice. they think I'm cool and they listen. Uh, and then all hell's going to break loose Yeah. when my little guys, maybe 13, 14, 15. Yeah. I remember being pretty pissed off when I was 15, thinking yeah. everyone was stupid. And my seven-year-old girl is borderline preteen. So oh, really? probably, <laughs> uh, yeah. Probably so they're on the sort of the same time horizon yeah. right now, right? Like a nightmare. Yeah. Four or five years apart, but yeah, a very similar yeah. Uh, trajectory of time. That's fun. Anyways, this, um, why aren't you in Vancouver, by the way, in terms of like your projects or your business? It's just an easier sell when it comes to the U.S. The math works family easier. Rentals. The, yeah. the math works easier. It's not the same commitment. Uh, you know, yeah, just the financing stack of of um, these groups is way more aggressive. The total addressable market is I mean, real estate as a whole, as much as Canada is one-tenth the size of the U.S., the real estate market's only about one-fifth. So there's actually a massive opportunity on, like, value base in real estate in Canada. It's, it's huge, you know. But when it comes to number of homes and the groups that are, there's many groups that are buying hundreds of homes a week. Many. Um, there's multiple groups that own over 100,000 homes, yet they only own 2 to 3%. Uh, institutional investors only own 2 to 3% of all homes in America. And that's changing, you know, and that's, that's going to come with some massive challenges to, to everyone involved. Um, but, uh, but there, there's, uh, yeah, there's, there's just a lot more scale where it's the same amount of work. It's probably a bit more work, but same amount of work to, to some extent to have a larger group buy in that, you know, 10,000 homes, 15% vacancy, they have 1500 homes that need filled. And here we are compared to, uh, having to convince retail investors, we haven't gone the retail route yet because if you own four condos, that can be, you know, that it's still, you're treating those as your, essentially your endowment, right? And, and it's not necessarily like you look at it as, as a professional asset manager where an asset manager goes, okay, I'm going to have my portfolio. I'm going to take the 20% that may be our leggers. I'm going to divest those, get that capital, have a strategy to reinvest, right? So it's just a path of least resistance. I get it. Baby pictures. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good stuff. Thanks, Cam. Oh, no.